Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Tinius and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is my friend Jack Sanker of Thompson, Brody, and Kaplan. Hi, Jack. How's it going? So, Jack, um, for those of our listeners who categorize themselves as fellow legal nerds, I think we've really got a doozy of a pod for them today. We're joined by Ajit Singh, funding director of the Law Finance Group, and Travis Lankler of Burford Capital. Their company names probably give away what today's subject is. It's litigation financing and funding. And uh, Jack, correct me if I'm wrong, but this is an area of the law that is really booming and rapidly changing the day-to-day practice of law. And yet, oddly enough, it's often overlooked by practicing lawyers and really even legal watchers. Uh, Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's kind of what we wanted to discuss, specifically what litigation financing is, whether it's a good thing for lawyers and their clients, how it can be used by lawyers and their clients, and the potential impact that it can have on all of us. Yeah, and I should probably add for our listeners that Ajit is joining us virtually from San Francisco, and Travis is joining us also virtually from New York. Uh, welcome, Ajit and Travis. Thanks for coming to the pod today. Pleasure. Great. Thanks for Thank you for having us. So, uh, Jack, before we get started, let's set the scene a little bit. In general, and for those in our audience who haven't uh, dealt with litigation financing before, what is it generally? What are we talking about here? So litigation financing or litigation funding, it's sometimes called, is the practice where a third party that's unrelated to the lawsuit uh, provides capital, usually but not always, to the plaintiff in a lawsuit in return for a portion of any financial recovery from that lawsuit. So in return for equity in the outcome of the lawsuit. Okay. Now, the money from financing companies goes to paying attorney's fees, expert witness fees, court costs, uh, a number of things. Now, it can also provide working capital for companies involved in expensive litigation or help business owners pay for personal expenses while they're working their way through a lawsuit. So it really spans the spectrum of potential uses for cash in a lawsuit on both sides of the bar. Interesting. You know, I have to admit that before we started uh, researching for this episode, I really didn't have a firm understanding of just how versatile and widespread litigation financing is and how litigation is essentially becoming a booming new asset class. Uh, Ajit, Travis, um, maybe let's start with Ajit. If you would, why don't you take a moment and describe for our, our listeners, in your own words, what it is that you and your companies do in this sector? Okay. Um, Law Finance Group is a privately owned litigation financing company with offices in uh, San Francisco, New York. We were founded by attorney go 23 years ago, and we funded about over a thousand law-related transactions in our history. Uh, pr- primarily, we provide non-recourse advances to attorneys or the clients for late-stage pre-judgment cases, settled cases, judgments on appeal, and other opportunities, and for law firms. We offer portfolio financing, whereby we advance a portion of the anticipated attorney's fees in a select group of cases. We have particular experience in appeal finance. That's how our company started 23 years ago, and that's what's, uh, we've done that throughout our long history. And my personal responsibilities at Law Finance Group is uh, the funding director, legal counsel, is just originating the transaction, educating the marketplace, and managing the uh, transactional process for the client and the uh, counterparty and the, through the, throughout the whole process and servicing the transaction as well. So Got try it. to keep it short. Got please. it. Uh, Travis, is, would you describe Burford similarly? Uh, somewhat similarly, yes. Yeah. So Burford Capital uh, was launched in 2009. We're a publicly traded um, provider of litigation finance and legal finance solutions uh, listed on the, traded on the London Stock Exchange 
uh, with more than $3 billion committed to the legal market overall. Uh, our offices are in Chicago, where I am in headquartered when I'm when I'm not joining podcasts virtually from New York, I'm, I'm sitting right. in the Chicago <laughs> office, um, and uh, also offices in New York, uh, London, recently opened in Singapore. Uh, so operations around the world with a team of about 100 people. Uh, we focus on commercial, complex commercial litigation, business-to-business litigation, and we work with, with companies involved in that, in that litigation as well as with uh, the law firms that serve them. And as, as you all described in, in uh, explaining this sector and what it does, we provide capital in a, in a lot of situations that look like litigation finance, but a lot of transaction structures that are, that are more mm. complex and more creative, but always with legal or regulatory claims or legal or regulatory risk as the underlying asset or, um, or um, issue or thing that we are underwriting in order to provide capital ultimately to our counterparty. And as you said, sometimes those dollars are being used to fund the litigation. Often they are not. And turning mm. to, to Burford or uh, LFG or others is simply a way to monetize an asset that you know, otherwise is contingent and intangible and really no other capital providers will uh, are willing to extend, you know, extend cash uh, against those sorts of contingent legal claims. That's interesting. I'm learning things even uh, in the intro part of this uh, podcast. So when we were putting this together and doing a bit of research, we realized that litigation financing is a, a growing sector of the finance world. We have um, some data in front of us that shows that litigation financing has grown by over 400% in the last five years. And we see that demand for financing is coming from law firms of all shapes and sizes, as well as clients, businesses, and even Fortune 500 companies. Uh, so we'll give you a bit of a softball question here, but what are some of the reasons that lawyers, clients, law firms, companies are, are seeking financing? Why are they coming to you? What are they looking for? Travis, well, why don't you lead off? Yeah, sure, sure. Happy to. Um, and I, I, I promise not to take the, the full podcast uh, with, <laughs> the, with the, with the market. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll, leave, I'll leave some ground for Ajit to cover as well. Uh, I, I think you know, we are, we are um, providers of capital and also warehousers of risk for companies and law firms uh, in connection with commercial and complex litigation and also just the, the legal industry more broadly. So, you know, what are they looking for? Um, sometimes someone who might approach us, a litigant, might approach us because they are looking for a solution to manage the ever-increasing cost of complex litigation. So they are looking for capital to fund uh, the cost associated with litigation, to pay legal fees, to pay expert witnesses, discovery vendors, and the like. Um, and that's that's times, from both sides of the bar, right, Travis? Not just plaintiffs. That's right. That's yeah. correct. Um, that's correct. Other times, um, you know, it might be a, a law firm or a litigant that approaches us. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, appeal financing, and that's something that that we do, and others in the space do as well. Where someone approaches us, so let's say there's a district court judgment in hand, but, but now it's subject to uh, to Seventh Circuit risk. Um, and I used to be able to say it's subject to the the whims of Judge Posner, but I can't say that anymore. Um, <laughs> but, friend, but friend of the pod, folks, Judge Posner. Yeah, he's a way. friend of the pod. We had him on a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> uh, and and so, you know, the, the there are folks who are sitting on those judgments, both litigants and law firms on contingent or alternative fees, who might, uh, for their own um, uh, timing reasons or risk management reasons, want to convert some of that contingent position into actual cash so that they can offload some of the risk of how that case might actually turn out. All mm-hmm. of these investment structures that we'll be talking about today are uh, you know generally speaking non-recourse meaning if 
we're we're uh, making an investment based on the litigation outcome, and if that litigation outcome is unsuccessful or bad, uh, we don't receive a recovery. And, and, that, and that's, that's how it's different. The, Sorry, Travis. I was just going to ask. That's how it's different than maybe more traditional funding sources for law firms, right? Because traditionally, um, if a firm didn't have the capital to fund, uh, you know, let, let's say a contingency case, they would go to a bank for the money, right? In correct. which case, they'd have to pay it back no matter what. Right. It, so it's transformative in that way for law firms in particular, because firms that are looking to expand uh, the amount of work that they uh, are engaged for on a contingent fee basis, for example, can take money, uh, obtain funding from a litigation finance provider to pay some of the costs of those cases, knowing that if they're unsuccessful, they haven't put uh, the tax and the trust and estates partners at risk of having to pay back the bank because they drew on a line of credit in order to fund that work. So it, it dramatically changes the, uh, the, the risk calculus uh, for law firms in, in that way in particular. So you guys touched on this a little bit, and maybe Ajit can talk about the underwriting process. How do companies like Burford Capital and Law Finance Group, which are not law firms, um, attach a certain risk assessment to very complex litigation, maybe in situations where even the attorneys that are involved in those cases really don't quite know um, how the case is going to turn out? That's got to be something that's you know unique to your field. Yeah, it's... Uh well, it's a, it's a pretty extensive underwriting process. Both of our companies have uh, attorneys on staff. I know Travis is one, I'm one, but it's uh, so you have to talk to the attorneys. You start looking what's publicly available, and um, it is an objective viewpoint on the case. And uh, honestly, we, I'm sure uh, Burf is the same, we reject more cases than we accept right. um, because they're sometimes trying to transfer too much risk to us. And so we, um, that's part of our assessment. And so we just do a detailed review of the factual disputes, legal issues, claims, and then make an assessment of the likely outcomes and timeline to resolution. And we also have outside counsel we work with um, reviewing transactions as well for us independently. So with two reviews, is the, it's a pretty extensive uh, underwriting process. You also do a, uh, underwrite the attorneys and potentially the venue, the judge's history, and you also even look at political external consideration. Interesting. I, I wonder how it would feel to to come to you guys with a uh, possible case and then be rejected because you don't think it's good enough. I mean, that's kind of a <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's always a tough thing. Right? Yeah, pick up the phone and start talking settlement with the other side. Right. right yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, let, let me actually jump in. I mean, first of all, you know, interacting with us feels amazing. I, I'm not doing my job if I don't tell you that it does. But um, the, the the serious point. Um, in response to what you were saying, though, I, just like Ajit said, I mean, we, we reject the vast majority of um, opportunities that we see. But I think even when we reject cases, um, which could be for a variety of reasons that are our own reasons that don't reflect on the merits of the case, we're not um, popping up out of a black box to just utter the word no and then disappear again. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're working with law firms and litigants to, to tell them why. And I think um, that is that is a helpful service to the people that we work with. Uh, and we might not fund a case this time. We might fund that case or a different case down the road, but we don't make it a mystery. And I'm sure Ajit and his team don't either about why we aren't able at this point in time to extend capital. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, in terms of how it does feel to, to work through the diligence process, but ultimately not be successful if you're on the, the asking end and not the providing end of, of this uh, relationship, I think at the, the very worst, 
uh, you're getting insights into how a neutral third party, like for example, a court, uh, mm-hmm. might view the claims that you're about mm-hmm. to make, and you're about to make them potentially on a contingent fee or paying out of pocket to pay the lawyers. Uh, and either way, maybe you want to rethink how you're framing the case or thinking about the litigation based on your interaction with us. So I hope even when we turn people down, um, that, that we're doing so you know, constructively and, and not reflexively or, or without giving them at least the benefit sure. of the experience. Sure. So for those of our listeners who are attorneys who haven't worked with uh, financing companies as sophisticated as yours, what kind of um, what kind of considerations might lead you to turning down a case other than just you think they won't win on the merits of a case? I'm happy to speak you know, from, from our perspective. I think that Ajit laid out uh, the, the list of a lot of the things that anyone in this space would think about. I like to tell people that the experience is a lot like if you were at a law firm and internally you were approaching your contingent fee committee for approval to take on a new matter, what would what would the people on that committee want to know? Sure. Uh, we want to know much the same things. I think one of the biggest reasons for us that can lead to a situation where we wouldn't be able to invest is where we think that because of the size of the case uh, or some of the likely outcomes of the case, as Ajit said, someone's basically asking us, to transfer too much of their risk to us, meaning they mm-hmm. want too big of an investment relative to the size of the case. And you know, it's an important thing for us to talk about is that we don't control the litigation in which we invest. And because of that, because we are passive right. capital, we have to make sure that we're setting up a situation where all of the people who do have control, the litigants and the lawyers, are incentivized to make decisions that we think are good decisions. So if we are investing too much in a case that's too small, and then a settlement offer is put on the table, the litigant, if acting rationally at that point, will reject it because she will want to go to trial uh, and, and see if there's a grand slam possibility because that's the only way that she gets a big return because we've already basically provided too much in comparison to what the case is actually worth. Mm-hmm. So that's incentive structures and investment sizing um, is probably one of the biggest obstacles you run into um, when, when looking at cases on the front end. Okay. Ajit, anything to add there? Uh, no, I think Travis covered it pretty well. I think, um, obviously, one thing we, I'm sure, um, so both companies doing pretty much every litigation financial does substantiate the defendant's ability to pay. Um, that's obviously important uh, right. for us to get repaid on the end of the end of the day. But no, I think uh, Travis covered it pretty well, and we were very similar in okay. uh, our okay. approach. You know, one of the things, um, Ajit, that Travis raised that, uh, caught my attention. I mean, they all did, obviously. But one of the things that uh, my ears perked up on was when he was talking about how um, law finance companies don't have control over a case. And that, you know, raised the whole issue of ethical concerns, which I think is a big barrier to entry for a lot of lawyers out there. You know, they they think back to their law school professional ethics uh, class and the word champerty jumps into their head, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, that century old ban and I think still exists in most states against third parties meddling in court cases by backing one of the parties. Um, can you speak to that a little bit, what that relationship's like? Can you make, if you can't have direct control, can you make suggestions? What's your involvement like? Oh, we um, definitely do not have any control in um, the decision-making of the process. Um, and then most litigation financiers will put that in the contract and transactional documents reflect it. So. We want to obviously avoid any perception of uh, champerty, maintenance, et cetera. So uh, most, that's usually um, an expressly part of the agreement. Um, so the, there are suggestions. Um, sometimes they'll come to us, discuss settlements, whether um, 
what just the economics of, the, of our deal, whether we should uh, make a discount or just um, kind of uh, facilitate settlement on our end. And sometimes mm-hmm. they'll come to us on how to, because we've um, underwritten the case, they'll actually approach us and just ask us our input on, on the briefing or um, how it, what our thoughts were, um, just kind of just like bouncing ideas off. But in no way do we, it's a requirement. Um, obviously, after they go through a diligence process and they're comfortable with us, and they realize that we're approaching it objectively, and now we have an economic interest um, in this case. So there are most attorneys are receptive to feedback from third eyes mm-hmm. on on their case. So more yeah. input's always better, and and so that's kind of how uh, we approach it, and we offer that, but we don't uh, require it. And I'm sure all of this stuff is done with the you know explicit informed consent of the clients, obviously, right? It's not yeah. as long as they're they're sharing things with you, you know, without behind their client's back, so to speak. But as someone who has yeah. and it, has used um, some certain types of litigation financing myself in my own practice in the past, it does create uh, somewhat of a balancing act where uh, you, you know, with the consent of your clients and everything else, you're um, balancing the interests of your client versus um, the outcomes that are going to affect the way that uh, a third-party lending company may be invested in the case. Um, so it, it does tend to complicate things. Well, I think uh, echoing what Travis said, that's why, I mean, we reject cases for um, a lot of the same reasons as, as the economics of the case potentially um, may cause conflicts down the road when there is a recovery. So we're conservative in how much we'll put into a case, and we hope to avoid uh, those situations and avoid that. We don't want you to create a balancing act on your end. And so we try to avoid that, and that goes into our diligence underwriting process. But uh. yeah, I would I would just say Jack, that the you know the balancing act is far more uh, pronounced in situations where lawyers themselves are directly working on a contingent fee basis. Uh, right. And, and the attorney, you know, we've 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 lived in that world for many decades now, and the attorney ethics rules handle that just fine. So I, I think in situations where there is, uh, you know. Client disclosure, the, the, the client's involved, the firm's involved, the, the litigation funder uh, has, has made an investment with one side or the other or both uh, in terms of the, the, the litigant and the, the law firm. Um, you know, I, the best analogy uh, that, that I have once the investment is made in terms of, of uh, attorney ethics and just what the relationship looks like, you look like a, a jury consultant or a non-testifying mm-hmm. expert or any number of the non-lawyers even though we are lawyers by background, we're not uh, lawyers who are engaged on the case. Um, we look like the, the constellation of non-lawyers who get involved in big litigation these days and who get to uh, have the benefit of work product protection and provide strategic insights. But of course, at the end of the day, the client is in control and the, the attorney uh, retains all of uh, the ethical obligations that are present under the rules to be a, a zealous advocate independent of, of outside influences. But, you know, litigation finance is is, uh, is far from the only thing that can be part of the uh, attorney-client calculus that, that oh, sure. just makes it imperative on attorneys to be sure that they understand their kind of background ethics. So it sounds like you're describing – I'm sorry about that, Travis. It sounds like you're describing it essentially as – venture capital with a very light touch is that fair um sure maybe that's fair i mean i think the i think any well i i, I guess I'll, I'll pick on the analogy only a little bit which is to say any venture investor uh, has reasons that they have conviction behind 
a new technology, a new management team, a new idea. Mm-hmm. Um, the the cost of capital, if you want to think of it that way, in, in venture capital and the odds of success. You know, venture capital to I guess to the layperson sort of sounds like someone is implying well that you're taking a bunch of flyers and if only one of them works out you get a massive return and that makes it all worth it yeah fair um, enough you know for a host of reasons that's not what we're doing right. but in terms of what the relationship looks like and and then the degree of influence we have going forward on if you're analogizing to the portfolio capital company of the venture capital firm yes that's about right if the investor doesn't have control rights which we never do um you can give suggestions and and the lawyer says well you know oh what a great idea i hadn't thought of that or you know, you have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, this has been a pleasant phone call, but I'm now going to go and litigate the case the way that I see fit. Mm-hmm. It, it, that reminds me kind of at the extreme ends of the, the spectrum in legal financing. Um, you know, obviously before this pod, I did research on both of uh, your companies, and I don't think you're anywhere near this or anywhere associated with what I would describe as uh, activist invents, investing or what others have described as activist investing. You know, probably the the most prominent example that may come to people's minds still is Peter Thiel's revenge plot against Gawker. Um, you know, uh, but there, there's also another uh, legal financing company that I was recently reading about where they, where they are actually offering $100,000 to anyone who has a claim against Harvey Weinstein for sexual harassment oh, wow. in order to get their lawsuits off the ground. Uh, what, what do you think about that? end of the spectrum in litigation financing? Well, I think I hope they have a lot of capital. They're going to run out of money, it seems like. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I, yeah, that, I mean, yeah, I just think that's going to lead to, that's, I would say I don't think either one of our companies engaged in that, and so it's just, uh, I mean, it's, you don't have a claim, then now you're coming forward with the, and with the claim, um, people are always going to look at that and be skeptical. It's like, are oh, you coming forward now because of the hundred thousand? Mm-hmm. So, so that's, I think right. that's, um, it's a pretty extreme example as of all industry, all, all, every industry, there's, there's responsible funders and, and there's, um, potential activities that are, are, um, irresponsible. So I don't think, uh, I, I, I'll try to, I don't want to talk ill of the competition. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I'm a little more, um, <laughs> A little bothers me a little less on its face. It's not something Blifford has done, um, but you know those are well. If someone has a pretty... has a legitimate claim and passes <laughs> right. through, you know, your rigorous uh, system of vetting and underwriting, you know, from Why your not? perspective, what's the difference? Right. I, I I think that's probably where I come at. I mean, I, you know, the it, it's a more newsworthy example. Maybe it's as much of a PR play as it is a, a sort of serious push for uh, new cases in which mm-hmm. to invest. But to your point, if if five women who had not previously come forward um, are uh, have have reasons that they need capital, or simply would take that capital in connection with bringing cases and, and put it toward the claims themselves, um, the only difference is that the the prospective funder here, I think the, the firm Legalist, um, put out a press release saying they were doing this, as opposed to just trying to contact the women individually or waiting for the women to contact them. That difference, I think is a little more aggressive and so it, it puts maybe some of the issues that we were talking about in full relief but i don't think that on its face it makes the underlying investments more troubling from an ethical perspective but yeah to be sure it's a it's a bit more in your face than um than either ajit's firm or mine uh has traditionally been I, there's no question about that. <laughs> but ultimately you guys are investing in 
you know, an outcome that's going to be decided by a judge or a jury, or it's going to be negotiated between uh, a number of attorneys that are representing their clients. In a way, you are investing in, uh, not to get on my soapbox, but investing in sort of justice and the justice system running its course. So it's not as though this is speculative investing or it's um, investing for the sake of uh, accomplishing something politically. Ultimately, you, you, the outcome and your value of your investment is going to be determined based on the series of laws and judicial system and everything else that we have in place. For sure. And and that, you know, yeah. I have I have a lot more than two, but I'll, I'll limit it to two pushbacks on, on um, the Peter Thiel comparison, because as you imagine, you know, when you can combine sex tape and litigation finance, a lot of people have done that. And want I to mean, we're trying to that. entertain our so, listeners yeah, here. Right. So. <laughs> sure. I mean, you're jogging, people are doing whatever you're doing, you got to try to make this interesting. So I, I hear you. Um, look, I, I think you're, you're right that um, we ultimately are involved for, um, we have investors to which we're accountable. Uh, Burford has public shareholders as well as private fund investors. Uh, so that is that makes us different from Peter Thiel. I guess, though, I would say, you know, um, so, so I'll defend legalist and maybe now I'll defend Peter Thiel as well. I mean, the, the, what he did is just a more personalized, uh, one-on-one version of, uh, people funding public interest litigation, which also has been going on for decades. And it's one of the, one of the things that really drove the Champerty laws out of business because we've decided that it's okay and it serves the public good. For um, this club and the NAACP and other groups to sure, to oh, sure. the ACLU, yeah, this is something have. that's old, right, right. And so, if Peter Thiel had just said, "Hey, it's not me, Peter Thiel. It's Committee of Concerned Citizens for Stronger Defamation Laws, whatever that acronym <laughs> is." He could have um, slapped together a five hundred one c three to do this and, and look a lot correct. better from a PR perspective. Co- correct, but like from a, from a workings of justice standpoint, it's really no different at the end of the day. And I think a lot of people miss that. So the that yeah. point uh, brings echo, up. Kind of, sorry, go ahead, Ajit. Sorry. No, I guess uh, I mean to echo uh, Travis says, and also um, to discuss Peter Thiel a little bit because I've got a lot of pub publicity. Is we don't we have a duty to investors, and we don't. Um, most funders will not um, finance cases to extract pain, kind of what Peter Thiel did. And so, but on the just on the flip side, there there are other parties out there who use money to. Um, Kind of punish people economically on the defense side, the product liability, med mal cases. Insurers won't lay down their swords, so to speak, until um, much later down down the road after they extracted some pain. So, kind of um, similar. To what oh, you you don't say. Is, uh, we see it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so this conversation raises a kind of an interesting dichotomy that fascinates me about uh, litigation financing, and there is on the one. Uh, hand what um, Jack was talking about, which is that it seems like a great tool for access to justice, which is such a big problem um, today. You know, it helps undercapitalized parties, law firms, companies pursue meritorious claims that they otherwise wouldn't be able to just because the cost of litigation is so high. Um, On the other end of the spectrum, you have some criticism that litigation financing actually just makes everything more expensive because there's more sunk monies in cases, larger judgments and settlements are required to satisfy um, all the parties. What, what do you guys think about that dichotomy? So I think that you hear that criticism much more in connection with um, a somewhat separate industry and a space from, from the one in which Ajit and I are involved, um, namely consumer 
litigation funding uh, mm-hmm. where individual consumer plaintiffs are able to obtain an advance of the value of a car accident settlement uh, that they might have coming to them uh, as, a, as a result of an insurance dispute, for example. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I'll, I'll stick with the theme of defending legalist, defending legalist and Peter Thiel and now consumer litigation finance. Um, but but I do think that, you know, the, there there can be some predatory practices in that space. Those practices are bad. Uh, but but the, the concerns that you hear about driving up settlement values, uh, I, I frankly think that is more of the uh, just sheer hackery uh, of the special interest groups uh, from the defense bar who just want to, obviously, for their own reasons, uh, pay as little as they can for claims and, and force individual consumers into settlements much sooner uh, because those individuals might have really dire needs for cash. So mm. as long as the rates being charged are commensurate with the risk and they're not opportunistic or anti-consumer, I think uh, a lot of people would say, even in the consumer space, you're probably on the side of the angels if you're saying that consumers are getting higher settlements uh, because insurance companies aren't able to settle you know, before the first pleading is, or is even filed. Sure. And uh, Ajit, I read an article recently, I think it was in Law 360, that quoted one of your co-workers, uh, Alan Zimmerman. And Alan was explaining that it's been, uh, you know, five years since the nearly $18 billion Deepwater Horizon oil spill uh, settlement was struck. And the lawyers involved in that incredibly successful suit have yet uh, to be paid in it. Um, and litigation financing has proved to be a way for those plaintiffs to leverage the settlements and essentially um, take out loans on their expected earnings, rather those plaintiffs' lawyers, I should say. Um, so going to Travis's point, this isn't something that can only be good for consumers, but it can be really really be a boon for law firms as well, right? Yeah, that's, that's accurate. Uh, plaintiff firms, a lot of them are contingency um, majority firms, so lumpy cash flow, um, is their mod- business model, and so some they we we provide uh, the capital, and there's a need there. So I think um, it's uh, can be very uh, advantageous for law firms. It also can they can expand their portfolio, expand their risk appetite, etc. By uh, partnering with um, a law a litigation funder, uh, which will access would give them additional access to capital um, beyond just the potential bank line, etc. So it's it's tough right now for um, Law firms get loans from banks, uh, credit lines, et cetera, um, mm-hmm. especially expansive ones. So um, we um, provide that need. And obviously the civil justice system is not getting any cheaper or any more efficient. <laughs> and so <laughs> we are uh, a capitalistic response to, the, to those inefficiencies in the civil justice system, which affects attorneys and law firms. And so we believe we're a solution to, to these problems today. And so, yeah, it's... Uh, Law firms can uh, can survive day to day operations without having to worry about that by using uh, lit financing. Right, and not only survive, but I was also reading another article. I think it was in Bloomberg, um, where it, it was talking about a firm that had it was a startup firm, essentially a handful of big firm attorneys or exiles uh, left to create their own firm, but they needed capital to do it, and they found that through litigation financing. They found a litigation finance firm to essentially capitalize their entire portfolio. So it's not just for existing firms, but it actually can be useful to start new firms, right? Mm-hmm. That's that's correct. Yeah, so it's, um, it's a way to just get off the ground. I saw I read about that same firm, and it was, it was, it's interesting. And it's, um, it's just a way to um, get off the ground and get moving. And obviously, capital makes the, this country go around. So. Yeah. 
to help to have access to it. Yeah, but I think if you if you think about it from the law firm's perspective, you know what what does a law firm have against as the assets? Like, what is a law firm's inventory? It's the it's the accounts receivable uh, from from the work that it's doing. Right, it's their and cases, particularly, right? yeah, and and particularly in contingency cases where that AR is contingent and uh, tough to value. Um, or if you're wanting, if you have a lot of AR that is hourly, and you're an Amlaw 50 firm, but you want to expand your plaintiff side uh, trade secret practice or right. your plaintiff side uh, insurance coverage practice, you know, as I said earlier, the, the folks in the tax uh, practice group are perfectly happy with the annuity that they take home every year based on the hourly fees that are generated. But you know, the firms looking around basically wanting to take more risk and needing to put more capital out the door to to fund those cases, but it only it, it can only pledge what it can pledge absent personal guarantees from the partner. So mm. uh, this is expansion capital, working capital, a way for firms to to convert what they have into cash, either to increase their own year-end results or on the front end of the case to take on more cases and, and to be more aggressive than they would be able to be uh, otherwise if they were simply self-funding. Sure, and we you know it seems like we read on a daily basis about the contraction of the legal market and the the increasing problems that uh, even the biggest of law firms are having with the billable rate model. So uh, this certainly provides more versatility to law firms and more options. And you know I think that's probably a, a good place for us to take a break. We will be right back with Stranger Than Legal Fiction. This episode of At The Bar brought to you by Amata Law Office Suites. You shouldn't have to practice big law to have an office space that wows. Meet in one of Amata's modern locations throughout the Chicago Loop and your clients are sure to be impressed. Visit Amata's website, amatacenters.com, A-M-A-T-A centers.com or call 312-788-2700. This episode of At The Bar is brought to you by courtfiling.net, your solution for filing in over 100 courts in the state of Illinois. Courtfiling.net provides a better e-filing experience, focusing on speed and ease of use in the e-filing process while quickly addressing the pains that can arise from a newly mandated process. Courtfiling.net is affordable and offers 24-7 phone, email, and chat support. Visit us at courtfiling.net to take advantage to receive 30 days unlimited free electronic filings and see why it's the best solution for your firm. Let courtfiling.net worry about your e-filing so you can get back to taking care of your clients. So before we wrap up today, we're going to play a little game that our listeners are familiar with that we like to call stranger than legal fiction. The rules are simple. Jack and I both spent some time, uh, you know, stalking dark, dusty, abandoned law school libraries or really just poking around Google for a little bit and state legislative websites to confirm what we were reading is true. And we found some of the strangest laws that are still on the books in the U.S. And we also just made another law up uh, completely. Each of us is going to read one of those real but strange laws to our guests and to each other, read the fake one out loud, and we're going to quiz each other and a guest to see if we can guess which law is real and which isn't. Is everybody ready to play? Yeah. Let's do it. I, I hope one of them is champered. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been appropriate, but you guys would know. Uh, right. Yeah, you're, come on, we're talking to experts uh, Wouldn't that here. be embarrassing if you got that wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Jack, it's a fiction, right? Yeah, right. Correct. 
Chet, okay. why don't you lead us off? All right. So two laws, one's real, one's fake. Uh, option number one. In Arkansas, a pinball machine cannot give more than 25 free games to a player who continues to win. Hmm. So that's that's option one. And option two, in Illinois, it is a crime to possess more than 70 salamanders. <laughs> more than 70 salamanders <laughs> is a crime. So uh, let's start with let's start with Travis. I feel like I'm at such an advantage because I live in Illinois and have, you know, as do you guys, obviously such a great sensible salamander community. Big time salamander uh, lawyer, yeah. <laughs> um <laughs> I, boy, I mean, they're both very strange, but I think, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna lean on just an old, uh, sort of con- conservative state gambling, and you know, anti-pinball aversion. <laughs> if that's sure. a thing that people had, uh, I, I think you're underestimating the the big pinball uh, market. Big pinball, you know, big yeah. pinball has a no, lot sure. of lobbying I'm power. And also, I'm clearly underestimating the the anti-salamander lobby, but I think I'm gonna go. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna say Arkansas is real and Illinois is not real. Okay, Ajit, what do you think? Um, I get, I go the opposite. I mean, the great salamander scare of 1842 in Illinois. Like, <laughs> yeah, everyone remembers Bob, that. But, yeah, <laughs> and that guy had 71 salamanders. I mean, he really. Uh, they drew a hard line bank, at 70. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I think one of the stars on the Chicago flag is a reference to that salamander scare, isn't it? There's like the Great Fire, the World's Exposition, the salamander scare. I never remember the fourth one. Right. Yeah. Salamanders, yeah. <laughs> All right. I think, um, I think I'm going to go with Ajit on this one and say the Illinois law is real. Okay. So, for the record, Travis's option one, which is Arkansas, Ajit, Option two, which is the Illinois law, and same with John. The correct answer here, the real law, is the Arkansas law. A pinball machine cannot give more than 25 (laughs) free games to a player that continues to win. Interestingly enough, some restaurant gaming chains like Chuck E. Cheese actually are exempt from some of these statutes because they award games or toys or or things like that which Mm. don't constitute an exchange of quote valuable things so they there's an exemption in the uh arkansas code there and then in illinois as a caveat that law is sort of an urban myth um for some reason there's actually a a, lot when i was looking this up there was like a lot of people were like no 70 salamanders is definitely legal and (laughs) i i was like this i actually almost put that down as the real one but um fact checked it uh CBA at the bar is not fake news. And it turns out in reality, it's it's illegal <laughs> to keep any variety of aquatic life that's worth more than $600 if it was captured or killed in violation of the state's law. Mm-hmm. And the and where the 70 salamander figure comes from is uh, roughly 70 salamanders at the market value per salamander adds up to about $600. So not quite. <laughs> Wow, good research job. <laughs> I make sure that we're thorough here. Got big pinball strikes. Never, <laughs> wow. Some of that time you're never going to get back. You but I, I appreciate it. Uh, you know what? It's going to come up in trivia one night, and I'm going to crush oh, it. Oh, you're going to rock yeah, it. Yeah, you're going to yeah. be the hero of the bar. Yeah. It's time to shine. Yeah, time to shine. <laughs> All right. Round two. In Nebraska, drivers on mountain highways are required to stay as close to the right-hand edge of the road as possible. Or option two, in Oklahoma, it's illegal to lasso an ostrich 
violation of which law can result in a $1,000 fine and up to a year in jail. Ajit, why don't you start us off? I'm going to, I think, you said that it, it's in mountains in Nebraska, I don't think is real. So I would say um, the lassoing the ostriches, is a, it sounds fun, so they probably outlawed it. So <laughs> I'd that one being real. <laughs> Travis, what do you think? And, uh, yeah, I mean, so I grew up in Kansas. Again, I feel like I have an unfair advantage because I'm, so deep in the lizard scene locally, uh, and now I'm from the state between the two, the two states you just picked. Uh, but I don't know, you know, staying on the right hand side of the road. I grew up on a farm, dirt roads. You want to do that, even if you're in the hills. But I feel, I'm not sure about the mountains. Maybe the sand hills of Nebraska, but not the mountains of Nebraska. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like Ajit, I think I totally believe that someone from Oklahoma might have tried to rope an ostrich. So <laughs> I, have go, I have to go. I have to go with B. Jack, say the ostrich is real. <laughs> the ostrich is real. All right, Jack. What do you think? I, I guess. Are there ostrich in Oklahoma? I didn't know. I thought they were. I don't. Maybe. Haven't you ever had an ostrich burger? I suppose, but I They're thought good. it was from like, I don't know, Madagascar or something. I have no idea where ostriches are from. I mean, it's, um, a, it's a grazing animal. I yeah, I guess. Um, I'm gonna go with option one. Uh, driving on the right hand side of a mountain in Nebraska, but I have doubts as to whether there are mountains in Nebraska as well. But I'm gonna pick option one. And you would actually be right. And to the point Ajit was making, that is the great irony of the law because there are no mountains in Nebraska. <laughs> the, the Doing my due diligence, the highest point is Panorama Point, which stands at 5,429 feet above sea level. But it's considered merely a low rise on the high plain. So it's just... I really like to find out the story behind this law. I couldn't find anything on it, but I'm sure it'd be a good story. Someone just overreacted to the panorama. It sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you, did you come up with the ostrich bit yourself? Yep, that was all me. Wow. Okay, <laughs> I like you. it. It's compelling. Thank you. You want to protect their necks because they're so long. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Target. I mean, they're so fragile. Yeah. Right. They yes. they should ban that though. I'm I'm firmly on yeah. this this new law, John. Yeah, maybe we have to make that the law here in yeah. Illinois. We'll start a letter writing campaign. Uh, and on that flattering note, that's going to be our show for today. I want to thank our guests, Ajit Singh of the Law Finance Group and Travis Lankner of Burford Capital for joining us here today and giving us valuable insight into this increasingly important sector of the legal industry. It was both fun and informative. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-host today, Jack Sanker, our executive producer, Jennifer Byrne, and our sound crew, Ricardo Islas and Steve Weirich. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at, at CBA at the bar, all one word. Please rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you download the podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us, and we'll see you soon at the bar.